G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. We're really grateful for you taking the time to download and to listen to this RVC podcast. We don't ask for much in return. So we'd be incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcast or Acast and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great. Uh, other reviews can leave for different shows or different uh, different podcasts. We really appreciate it if you could take a couple of minutes of time to uh, leave us a review because it gets this information out to people who are interested in listening to it. So today, joining Brian and myself in the studio, we're going to talk to Linda Rutherford. So she's one of our lecturers in small animal surgery. Hello, Linda. How are you? Hi Dom, good, thank you. Good, good, good. Well, thank you for joining us. Pleasure. Um, and uh, and we're going to talk about uh, a BOA, so brachiocephalic upper uh, airway, ob- sorry, obstructive airway syndrome, right? Yeah, that's right. Go. Yeah, I got there eventually. Well, Just... like now, there's a debate though in the literature. It's uh-huh. becoming brachiocephalic airway syndrome rather than obstructive, or some people like just brachiocephalic syndrome. And and uh, are there? So is it trying to sort of differentiate certain parts of the disease? or? or? Uh, I think brachycephalic dogs themselves have lots of different aspects of health, like lots of different health issues. So I think um, if, like, with the airway syndrome, I guess lots of them have GI disease and that's being investigated more and more. So I think that's to try and encompass that. Okay. Um, well, it yeah. makes sense. So he's trying to sort of separate the strictly the airways from like every, everything else yeah. that they, they might they might get. Apparently. Yeah. So, so when would um, when would be sort of the, the the first time that you'd be able to recognise that a, a patient might might have this? So I suppose we're, we're talking about all the the, the classical um, brachycephalic dogs, so yeah. you, you bulldogs, pugs, French bulldogs, yeah. Boston terriers. Yeah. So they're the most severely um, brachycephalic. English Bulldogs, French Bulldogs, Pugs and Boston Terriers, although they're less popular, I guess, at the moment, Boston Terriers. But the first three breeds are just becoming more and more popular, especially around London and I think in in the towns. And um, then you do have like other breeds that can be affected, but less so. Just, you know, they often have a longer muzzle. So things like Chow Chows and even Staffies, sometimes Sharpays as well. Um, But the most severely affected breeds... Um, about 50% of them will have a degree of um, airway obstruction that is causing them a clinical problem. So a lot, basically. And I think it can even be recognised from like their first puppy check. Um, and we're seeing a thing where it really depends a little bit on the owners. So lots of people that have owned other dog breeds in the past and then have now got a brachy um, realise much sort of earlier on that their dog is not able to exercise normally at all. So they might be coming to the vets and saying, like, it's very noisy or it's not hardly able to do any exercise. Or the other thing is lots of vets are picking it up, say, at puppy checks and maybe uh, incorporating it with a neuter, so at about six months. So we can do the surge, the corrective airway surgery from any time, really, but um, we might try and wait till they're about six to nine months, just because it may be less likely that we'd have to do further surgery in the future. But I think if they're really severely affected and um, very dyspneic, we could do, do things like correct the palate, you know, from quite early on. So, uh, so what, what sort of surgeries are involved or what sort of uh, um, things can you do to correct yeah. the airway? So um, there's lots of things that we can do to try and help. I guess it's really important to point out that, unfortunately, even with um, 
lots of levels of surgery like we can never make them a clinically normal dog and so Cambridge is doing lots of work with their platysmograph which is basically a um, box that they put the dogs in they can measure their respiratory function really accurately and some new works just come out to say that the dogs that are positive for so brachycephalic dogs that are positive for um, being affected by BOAS even after the surgery they are better and better from what they were but they're still not as good as a control dog and they probably would be slightly worse than a brachycephalic dog that's less affected so there's like something like a 60 to 67 percent improvement Okay, so they're getting better, but they're not... Respiratory function, yeah. But they're not going to be perfect, because it's basically anatomical features, you can't correct them all, right? Exactly. So there's, like, a few things. So there's the primary problems, so things that they're born with. So they're stenotic nares, and then they've got often aberrant nasal turbinates, so it means that the space that the turbinates are supposed to fill is too small, so the turbinates are hanging back and being in the nasopharynx, Um, and then there's very little airflow through those noses. And then there's the soft palate, which is often very long and it's also been found that the muscle is different in the soft palate of brachycephalics to normal dogs and it's much much thicker so that just decreases the space there at the back of the um, nasopharynx and then um, you have laryngeal problems which are often secondary so we think because they've got such an increased inspiratory pressure the cartilages of the larynx and things become softer with time and they end up collapsing or folding inwards and they have um things like um laryngeal saccual eversion so that's the mucosa that sits between the ventricular folds and the vocal folds and again because of increased inspiratory pressure that mucosa like pouches out so it makes the rimoglottis much smaller than it should be because the cartilage are folding in and they've got extra mucosa there so they're termed as the secondary changes and then the other um sort of big primary thing that's a problem and something that we can't correct is hypoplastic trachea's so that is much more prevalent in english bulldogs but we do see it in boston terriers and things as well um and sometimes they can be so small it's not really compatible with life which is obviously really sad it's quite odd isn't it as well of having the upper airway sort of problems that they have that also the trachea size is 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 small for the size of the dog yeah so if you look at like an english bulldog their airway is ridiculously small for the size of the dog so they're often 25 to 30 kilos and when we intubate them I'm not kidding like we managed to get a five five and a half um et tube down which is what you normally put in a cat yeah. so a cat that's five kilos compared to a dog of like 25 30 kilos really really sad yeah um and if you like say normally a spaniel would get i don't know a nine et tube or something absolutely absolutely so, so when you're when you're thinking about like this surgery yeah. that you're in, involved and obviously like we're, we're talking more at a, at a referral center so slightly different of all the all the tricks and tools that you might have yeah. like would you always um image them like use use a ct to, to yeah. have, a, have a look at what's going on in the yeah, so it just depends. So uh, to say about the surgery, we usually like have a first line surgery, and they're, they're the ones that hopefully will have the biggest impact with the lowest risk. Mm-hmm. So often that's um, trying to do something with the nares, so the nostrils, and then the palate, and really that can make a massive difference for the dogs. And I do know that some people do th- those things in um, first opinion practice, um, but typically um, we 
do like to CT them and usually we CT their head to the thorax and I guess the CT is just much more sensitive at like picking up aspiration pneumonia and things like that that they are also a bit more prone to. The CT is really really good at evaluating the turbinates and doing something to the turbinates is like a second line procedure and we would never do that first of all because it's quite high risk so they're at high risk for bleeding and the bleeding can be fatal it can need a transfusion and you actually need a laser to perform that so um, and yeah so that's definitely something that you wouldn't do first off if you had say done the nares and the palate and perhaps even considered doing some laryngeal surgery and the dog had either improved for a short while and got worse again or hadn't improved as much as you'd like then you could consider maybe removing the turbinates. I spoke to Elvin about uh, an orthopaedic oddity, but but uh, saying that there was at least, you know, 20 different ways to put back in a hip or yeah. something ridiculous oh, like yeah. that. So I imagine, like, are there a, yeah. a, a number of published different techniques about dealing with the external nares and dealing with the, with the soft palate? Yeah, loads. They're all, like, sort of similar. Like, so alloplasty, so basically the nasal ala fold is that very external bit and you're basically just trying to make that wider so um often you can cut like a little wedge a tr- uh, like a pyramid shaped wedge so you have to make sure that you're actually going deep with your and you can do that we would do that with a number 11 beaver blade so a very small pointy blade it's really useful for that and then either like stitch that out the way or some people um there's a technique where you leave it open and it will heal by granulation tissue um again like they often do bleed a little bit but um it shouldn't be life-threatening from the nose i think um it, that is definitely something sometimes people in practice do the the nostrils only they won't um, do the palate and I guess that is the lowest risk procedure a good tip is to make sure the head's slightly the nose is slightly down when you do it otherwise they'll aspirate the blood good point yeah, yeah. good point so that's a good tip and uh, and with the uh, the soft palate are, yes. there, are there even Again, more loads. techniques uh, well I guess there are like all variations and I guess it will depend like where you were trained and of what equipment you've got like you alluded to again so that's something that can be done with the laser and the advantage of that is it's um there's no bleeding at all with it um or there's various like cut and sew techniques so some people will uh, cut the palate and then suture it um it's really really important that you oppose the nasal mucosa and the oral mucosa otherwise you're more likely to get scar tissue and things and there is there is potential for hemorrhage and then of course if you end up with a hematoma in your palate then your airway is more compromised so you do need to be careful and it's quite fiddly so even though they're short nosed you know you're inside the mouth you need long instruments to do it um and then more recently there's been a technique called a folding palatoplasty so you basically are filleting out the palate and then bringing the nasal mucosa forward so you're making it shorter and thinner and that's we do a variation of that technique here usually and that's definitely um i think really helpful and i guess even throughout my training we've become more aggressive in how much of the palate we remove so you definitely want to and often the palates are actually dangling all the way down into the larynx. Um, so we want to remove it to at least the sort of caudal pole of the tonsils. If not um, in the centre, we sort of make a U shape and the centre is slightly more rostral to that. So maybe the middle of the tonsil. Um, and again, yeah, with the folding um, palatoplasty, you have to be really careful of the arteries down each side and... Um, yeah, uh, that you 
have good apposition of the mucosas. It's one of those things I think. Look, I, I imagine with the growing popularity of uh, of um, uh, brachycephalic dogs, I imagine a lot of a lot of general practitioners are, are probably quite competent or happy to it to a point. But but uh, all the things you said about uh, bleeding and getting the right distance actually yeah. terrifies me. That I'm glad that I'm not in general practice or having someone ask me, "Can I do?" I know. I think that's it because if you read about the technique, and actually, I think some of the students do comment here because we see lots and lots of brackies here, like, like three or four a week standard um they're like oh the surgery doesn't seem that hard and i would say technically it's not that difficult but yeah it's definitely a judgment call like how short you make it because of course if you made the palate too short then they're going to end up being really really prone to aspiration pneumonia and these dogs already have compromised airways so that's certainly something that i have seen and you know cases that have come through medicine because of repeated pneumonia that's one of the things that i've noted when we did our oropharyngeal exam and and again, like I said, it's actually it's quite fiddly. It's a very small space. And um, I know, like, uh, from when I was a resident, one of my supervisors telling me that someone else that they'd supervised, not here, uh, ended up actually, like, suturing the nasopharynx closed just because of, the, you know, improper suture placement. So there are all, the, all these things that you do need to worry about. And like I said, it is possible to end up with a hematoma in your palate, which would then maybe necessitate having to put a tracheostomy tube. And I guess the thing is it's that anaesthesia is really critical and that's something that you should not underestimate in general practice because certainly more and more um, people in first opinion practice are having to do anaesthetics for neutering and things like that so it's really important that you don't extubate them till really late so often they're like actually pretty much fully awake sitting up blinking you know um until you before you remove the tube i think it'd be really good to have like an emergency um anesthetic induction kit ready with spare et tubes and it's really really important to stay with them for the whole time until they're you know fully walking and and fully conscious again because um they just have such a lot of redundant tissue especially you haven't if you haven't addressed the palate and when they're relaxed and when they're sort of waking up from their anesthetic and their airway can obstruct really easily and it doesn't take long you know for that to happen so it's not appropriate to leave you know put these in a quiet room without constant monitoring i would say so so if this is a a, we'll we'll, we'll get back to maybe to the anesthesia bit in a bit but if this is the the first time that you're seeing um this this dog would you would you have a look yourself at doing an exercise tolerance test or would you um as i sort of mentioned would you do a ct does that help with your judgment of how aggressive you're going to be or is it all going to be really visualization of, of what you can see because i can understand that yeah. you won't be able to see the the nasal turbulence yeah. and, unless you get uh, advanced imaging but yeah. <clears throat> but what you're seeing is, is visual things so the, yeah. the external areas yeah. and the larynx yeah. and uh, sorry the external areas the soft palate and and the larynx yeah. so you yeah. what so do you always get imaging? Do you always exercise them? Yeah, so it just, obviously it's quite cl- clinician-dependent and everyone will do something slightly mm. different, but definitely, um, and I always have a discussion with the owner, so I know that the CT will pro- probably double the, the bill. So if they're... Um, financially restricted or they're concerned you know concerned about that then I won't do a CT but I usually will take thoracic radiographs because I think that they can have um sort of like a subclinical pneumonia that's I think helpful to know and, and helpful to treat so in an ideal world I'd take radiographs and if there was anything that made me worried for pneumonia I 
ideally would do a BAL. But again, obviously, sometimes you just can't do what's ideal. But that would be something that I would definitely discuss with the owner. And as you said, like the soft palate and the larynx are really like visual things. So you can do that, an oropharyngeal exam under a light plane of anesthesia. Um, so that, for me, that's the most important thing, especially for the first line, the first stage procedures. But if it's a case that obviously is having recurrent problems and they've already had the narrows and the palate done somewhere else, then I think the CT is, is really helpful. Yeah. If that makes sense. The exercise tolerance test is really helpful and something that I would definitely encourage people to start doing. So it's been shown like several times that owners of brachycephalic dogs, it just becomes so normal for them that these dogs can't breathe and they can't exercise that actually it becomes less of a problem for them. And if um, if you can do like a exercise stress test but not to the point where you're making them stress it just becomes apparent like how little exercise they can cope with so we do like a six minute walking test and um just have shown that um their respiratory rate like really increases after a tiny amount of exercise and they can't walk very far at all so much less far than um than normal dogs or there was a study looking at like how obesity affected that and the brachycephalics walk you know much less than uh, a much lower distance than even an obese other dog which is pretty sad really yeah, it is. <laughs> that's, a, that's, yeah. a, that's a good point but as we said they, they have a, a number of different issues to compromise their their breathing so it's probably not not understandable yeah. and how, how did when uh, they did that study i know it's quite a specific question did they do it in the same environmental what, the conditions ones? no no the oh, environmental conditions yeah. i just wonder because oh, yeah. i suppose in the uk like there's only yeah. there's only a couple of months where it actually yeah. gets warm but yeah. uh, but but most of the time it's it's not but yeah. do they they standardize those conditions so i suppose we do we and and with that do we see a number of or more um, issues with brachies in, in, at this time. Oh, yeah, so I can actually answer that question. Lucky for you, I'm doing a talk at UCBS soon, so I'm like, I've been doing a lot of reading on brachies. So recently there, I think it was from France, they did another platysmograph study and they wanted to compare like brachycephalic dogs to normal dogs with heat stress. And, um, yeah, the brachycephalics coped far worse. And so they're resting respiratory rate was higher anyway and then with um they subjected them to like i think 21 degrees and something like 32 so it was quite hot and basically they um were just panted far far earlier and stayed hotter for longer and that's a really important thing to remember as well like they are so susceptible to heat stress like i remember um really sad story of a dog that was in here it had a pug and it had had spinal surgery and it was been doing really well he'd been here for quite a while and then unfortunately he, he died after being left in a hot car like in a car not even on a hot day so owners of like that would definitely be something i think would be great to talk to a brachycephalic owner about on the puppy check just you shouldn't you know, even if it's not even warm outside, do not leave them in cars and be careful about where you're leaving them at home, you know, if it's warm. I don't know how they cope in, like, hotter places, like Indian, it, Australian things. Yeah, it's... it's I think uh, they're getting really popular everywhere. It's interesting, isn't it, that how, you know, the, yeah, the environmental side of it actually gonna, mm. you know, plays more of a part. Yeah. You know, everyone knows not to leave a, a, a dog in a, in, a, in a car or that's, yeah. you know, indoctrinated, I suppose, in media and social channels yeah. and everything, even in the UK where we don't really have yeah. hot weather. And that's normally because 
if you put the you know if you don't have ventilation then it's just a hot box and it gets warmer but uh but even if you have open windows in a you know a slightly and increase breath. in temperature puts these guys into a different compromise probably because of the thermoregulation tied in with their ability to dissipate heat through their uh, yeah exactly through their respiration and through panting exactly so that's what that study was saying just because they're like so much worse at breathing yeah. then they literally are so much worse at getting rid of like thermoregulation yeah. because that whole area is compromised anyway because you know they like obviously release heat from panting by their air exchange and um uh yeah because brachycephalics are worse at <laughs> exchanging air okay so so you go back so you do a um so when you do a six minute walking yeah. test yeah. so 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 should that be at a at a what, what sort of temperature should uh, so that we, be? So we just, we try and do it in the hospital. So it is like roughly temperature control. Okay. But as you, yeah, it's quite hard to control the variables. And I guess for me, the exercise tolerance... So we're already seeing a biased population of dogs that have been referred for airway surgery. So for me, it's a useful test if then they haven't improved as much as I would like or as much as the owner would have thought so it's something objective that we can come back to and say well he walked you know 500 meters before his surgery and now he's walking 600 so there is actually an improvement and that though that's quite good I think most brackies were getting about 400 meters in six minutes so I think it would And, and what was the improvement um, yeah, so up to about 600. Um, so they definitely they improved how far they could walk and also their resting respiratory rate was much improved uh, six weeks after the airway surgery. So I think it was something around 50 before surgery and six weeks after it was about 30. And the other thing is, I guess, it's it's already artificially high because they're slightly stressed like it's on the day that they've traveled into the hospital and things like that so i think that's the other thing like these dogs really can't cope with any sort of stress at all so traveling can make make them you know have an airway crisis i think heat can yeah so they can be pretty tricky to manage i think and i think the issue is as well that owners just don't know that and don't realize that um and so when you um, when you do the surgery, maybe maybe we'll touch on because I love saying the word laser. So maybe oh, yeah. we'll touch on are there, are there different lasers that you <laughs> you can use, or is there a certain yeah. certain type? So this is something that I just need, I'm looking into, but I haven't got that far yet. But basically, I think a CO two laser is the most appropriate and the one that seems to be used for the airway surgery. And um, so there are many many types of lasers that you can get. So there's a diode laser and a homium YAG something or other laser and these are better for things like the laser lithotripsy of, of st- calculi to urinary tract stones or um dealing with ectopic ureters then you need a diode laser but um yeah for surgery the co2 lasers what you need and and do you think that there's going to be some um because unfortunately or unfortunately whichever way you'd like to look at it the popularity of these dogs and the amount of these surgeries that are that are happening i imagine it's it's uh, an exponential amount of of different surgeries or is there is there a, um, a movement in the surgical um, field to actually try and look to compare to get some uh, larger cohorts of studies sort of yeah. even prospective studies looking at, at what is a, a better type of surgery yeah. maybe using these uh, 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 the, the 
walking tests, so exercise yeah. tolerance tests. Yeah, for sure. So that's a big thing that we, like the ECVS, so European Congress of Veterinary Surgeons, so sort of all the specialists we're looking at, and that's what our conference in at the beginning of July, we've got a big panel uh, to discuss it, and I think we're going to try and do some collaborative research out of that. So there's a few issues that make it really hard um, with brachies. So basically they have a variety of problems. So you know they can have their nares, turbinates, the soft palate. They can have all this redundant um, pharyngeal tissue, and no one dog is the same. So it's very hard to standardise. And there are breed differences within the brachycephalic breeds as well. So say for example, like English bulldogs are more commonly would have a hypoplastic trachea, but French bulldogs will more commonly have a very thick soft palate. So it's very very hard to standardise outcomes and even compare like one surgical technique to the other because the dogs themselves are quite different and the other thing that's really difficult is getting objective outcome measures and that's a big thing that we I think collectively are working on because we know that owners are not very good at picking it up how bad their breathing is and um subjectively we do get improvement after airway surgery which is obviously great and very positive but um the big thing at the moment is these platysmographs, which is an objective airway um, measurement because you're actually looking at respiratory function. So, And the exercise tolerance test is another way of trying to um, look into that. So it's basically you do um, the heart rate and respirate before, subject them to some exercise and then look at their respiratory pattern, respiratory noise, respirate and heart rate and, and see how it's changed from before. But I think yeah, it's very hard to do objective airway measurements. And I was trying to... Um, speak to some um, human surgeons and I think they rely on SpO2 quite a lot but again that's quite hard to do in a in an awake dog um, you know they no. wouldn't tolerate it on their tongue for example yeah absolutely so I suppose that there, there are uh, better and, and better pulse oximetry yeah. units that, that might be able to do that but yeah. again I, I imagine like if you're doing a multi-center uh, yeah, study yeah, exactly. you need to have the same equipment yeah. to do that and put yeah. it on the same place and have a consistent uh, exactly. um, pulse oximetry reading with a consistent yeah. pulse profile and and you know for you to to get that yeah. information yeah. but but uh, but I suppose that it, it would give you a it would give you a, a, a numerical number and yeah. I suppose that might be better but I suppose it's similar to finding a distance with the um, yeah. uh, with the with the walking test but it's, yeah. but it's interesting it's a, it's it's come to the to the fray that uh, your you know the surgery group is actually meeting about this yeah. and talking about it now because yeah. I suppose that in in uh, in my mind that means that not only it's a hot topic but also it's at a point where everyone's decided yeah. something needs to be done. Yeah, like, and I think as well, I guess, because it's just so prevalent and the dogs are becoming so much more popular, that would be really great if we could try and have an agreement with the Kennel Club and other, like, breeding um, standards, I guess, the breed standards. So I know that in some European com countries, like in Germany, I think that they have an exercise tolerance test before they're allowed to breed. So they have to be able to walk a kilometre in 10 minutes. And I think they can sort of do that as they like. So they could run for a little bit, wait for a bit, as long as they did the kilometre. And I think that is actually a really positive step. And I think apparently in Germany as well, things like retro pugs are becoming more popular. So that's where they've crossed a pug with the Jack Russell. So they look like a pug, but just with the longer nose. 
so I think that would be really great um, and and I guess for me like we try and do what we can for each individual and and we do get good results and I think we do make a positive difference to them but on the whole obviously they, they just because they're so popular they being bred a lot more and I think the problems are becoming more and more pronounced so I think if we could do something to help the general population that would be really be the ideal as a vet surely that's one of our aims to like help as many animals as possible absolutely absolutely so so just go back to so what at what age would you ideally do surgery and is is there is there a time limit on on that or is there just more problems you have to deal with if you get to them later so I guess the we are tending to do them so we always see the more severely affected ones and they probably are about a year or nine nine months to a year and that probably is a good time to do the surgery so um if you correct their way as much as you can earlier then hopefully secondary changes like the laryngeal collapse because of the cartilage weakening shouldn't happen or happen to a lesser degree so I think if they're severely affected the sort of younger the better and I guess I'm always suspicious when I have a dog presenting for BOAS and it's you know six or seven so I think well probably does have a degree of like anatomic abnormalities but it's made it to this age so then I will just be very like try and be careful with my history to find out like why they've presented it now is it something that's been getting increasingly worse and then again maybe more likely to try and do a CT first off or be thinking in the back of my mind is there something else going on and and often it's pneumonia with these dogs and I, I guess I don't know why then by the time they get to six it becomes a problem but there's definitely a subset of them that are on and off of antibiotics. And are there different risks if you do different things? So are, are you more concerned about certain risks if you do the external nares and soft palate compared to laryngeal folds or, or anything to do with the nasal turbinates? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So that's why we would always try and do the like lowest risk procedures with the most benefits. That's definitely the nares and the palate. Then it's sort of surgeon preference whether they do the laryngeal saccules at that stage. So that's basically where you excise the little extra mucosa in the larynx so any time you operate on the larynx you make it there's potential for swelling and then um, there was a retrospective study from here that showed if you did that they're slightly more likely to need a tracheostomy tube afterwards Um, but I know that Cambridge is has sort of changed what they do surgically and they started their new protocol in 2016 and um um, in severely in dogs with laryngeal collapse, they're actually removing part of the larynx at this stage. And I, again, I think they don't do that for every case, and they would only do it for a severely affected one. So we grade laryngeal collapse out of um, three. So one is just inverted saccules, which pretty much most brachycephalics that I see have. Two is like when the um, arytenoids start folding in, and three is just more contact with the arytenoids so um they actually remove part of the arytenoids so essentially you're keeping the larynx permanently open um it has been described to do like a tie back so laryngeal lateralization on these cases but again it's higher risk than for laryngeal paralysis because you're putting sutures in cartilage that's already weakened so that's so these things are definitely sort of things that you wouldn't consider doing first of all because it might be that if you just do the nares and the palate you see a, a good enough improvement 
and the same with the turbinates. And that's really what we're aiming for, aren't we? Because we're not aiming for a uh, we're not aiming for a f- for a fix. Yeah. So we so really you just want it to be so they're not having like life threatening airway problems, and they can maybe do a bit more exercise so they have a good quality of life. Like that would be what I would hope yeah. for. And so. Uh, um, so obviously do, doing the surgery so once you've uh, once you've done that and bleeding as we mentioned before is one of the main risks I suppose with anything to do with the nasal turbinates um, yeah. is there anything you do post-operatively that is the the same as in do you give any medications oh you... so it, it's a little bit surgeon dependent but I do quite often give them a low dose dexamethasone so just to try and help with any airway swelling because I think they've obviously all been intubated and that's going to the rimagloss is often so small in them so I think any extra space that you can gain from them having reduced swelling is helpful so like 0.1 mg per kg maybe up to 0.2 if I was really worried then obviously you just need to be careful about non-steroidals if you are going to neuter them or whatever at the same time Um, and I think yeah it's really the post-op management is um, really important for recovering them from anaesthesia and then the other thing um, is I try and do supervised feeding only for about 10 days if I've operated on the palate. Because I just think, quite often, just to make a generalisation, they're quite greedy dogs. They eat very quickly and there is potential for them to aspirate. So definitely my policy for when they're in the hospital is like supervised slow feeding and I try and get the owners to do that at home as well. And using a harness is really helpful. Um, Yeah. And the number one thing that owners can do is actually keep them lean. So to be honest, that would probably make a, a massive difference to these dogs if they could all be like really slim, like slightly underweight, you know. And is that the seat so of the things that you talk to owners uh, about? So after the surgery yeah. or even before the surgery, is that, is that the, one of the main things? Yeah. Keep them keep them lean and and the environment where they can get to somewhere cool I'd imagine yep. and yeah definitely and not exercising them in the middle of the day you know so I think just take them out and, and what, what, are, what are the main um questions that, that clients do ask you so they're very obviously like very concerned and really worried for their dogs so they often get really upset and they um they want to know that they're doing the right thing for them and um, obviously no owner wants their dog to have surgery so I think that that's the main thing like is it justified and what are the risks and how likely would it be that they would need a tracheostomy tube and that sort of thing so um, yeah and, and uh, Eske, how, how often do they need a tracheostomy so tube? Not that often with us I I don't know like for sure but I say roughly like five percent i don't know it's not very common at all and that's even if we operate on the larynx and that's and that's really secondary to just having marked inflammation after the surgery rather than rather than anything anything else and it's a a temporary yeah Yeah, exactly so normally if they did need one they're normally in for like 48 hours or something like that obviously it would be depending on what's happened but i think yeah after a normal airway surgery of like nares and palate and Sacules, it's very, very rare that they'll need a tracheostomy tube. And then maybe, maybe just so finally, uh, before we wrap things up, what, what, is, what do you think has changed 
um, in the in the last sort of four years or, or uh, you know, since I suppose you finished your training and in, yeah. in to do with management of, of brachycephalic to do the surgical side of it mm. and and also where do you think things will go in the in the future or do you see like significant changes or are we just going to get things a bit more refined well so I think that definitely um, the laser surgery is becoming more like prevalent and there are different things that you can do with the laser so like the partial arytenoidectomy and things like that would be it would be beneficial to have a laser um and i think i guess as i was saying we're sort of becoming like throughout my training the amount of soft palate that we removed definitely increased so we're definitely removing a lot more now than we used to at the start of my residency in what, 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 is, what is that based on um i think it's to do with like it, it will like finding the appropriate level so that they won't be prone to they won't be at a high risk for aspiration pneumonia and it will make the biggest difference to their airway by freeing up as much space in the nasopharynx as possible so it's just having more confidence that actually yeah they, they can cope with yeah and it probably because we're seeing so many more yeah like so we actually know like a little bit just from from experience really i would say um yeah because on the whole like we never definitely didn't used to see like three or four a week and now that's standard and uh, so I think and then in the future I would hope that we can do something to help the breeds in total rather than just the individual so I think it does need to be like a breeding program and it's good as well that we're trying to think about objective measurements yep. so we can actually understand a bit more sure. what it means to the patient rather than just what yep. we perceive as a, exactly. as a subjective experience for, for them, which is which yeah. is great, as you said, because they're all positive about yeah. what happens afterwards. But it's good yeah. to put a number um, exactly. and, and say, well, you know, they can walk 50 percent more, which yeah. is which is actually remarkable. And <laughs> also like to see what are the most important aspects of the surgery so it maybe we found out that actually the main thing is doing the palate and the nares and maybe then the improvement that you see from doing these sort of slightly higher risk surgery isn't worth the risk i don't know like that's something that we haven't looked into and definitely not something that i know but i do know and um, i think i guess what we can do is becoming more sophisticated all the time and that is going to benefit the individuals that have surgery well, that's uh, that's that's great, Lynn. I might. Uh, do, you, do you think we've missed out anything in particular with the the uh, BAS? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I guess just the anaesthetic management, which obviously isn't my area anyway. But I know, like, you have to be super careful with what you're pre-medding them with. And again, like, once you've pre-medded them, I think you really need to be on hand. So often, our anaesthesia team will do it. Uh, you know, IV have the patient with them, and then be ready to intubate. Um, they're very careful as well about, say, if they've given them metatomidine to facilitate a catheter, whatever, they often antagonise it. So they won't have things that keep them sort of depressed on board. Having said that, like every now and again, when we use a very low dose metatomidine for different, say, a brachycephalic dog that's had a tico or something like that for a different issue. But um, and um, they are really often they switch to sevoflurane just before um we're about to finish i think so that it's um got out what do you say when it gets rid of the exchange yeah so it's removed yeah exactly so it's removed from the body more quickly than isoflurane and 
yeah, they keep the tubes in for a long time. Like, honestly, the dogs are pretty much just about to get up and walk. And they, they tolerate that really well. I always find that interesting. It's yeah, a, like weird. it's an anecdotal thing. There's yeah. a few anecdotal things that you come across, yeah. don't they? And you wonder what goes on. But they will sit quite yeah. happily with a tube. In. So I just thought it's because they actually realise, oh, I can like um, really breathe easily, <laughs> get everything out of the way. Um, so I guess that that um, they're the things, and and just being with them when they're recovering, so that you can react. I think is important. We there's a lot. Oh, we didn't talk about GI issues. So I think that regurgitation is also really prevalent in these breeds. And again, there is like a sort of tentative link between increased inspiratory pressure and regurg. So these breeds are more prone to hiatal hernias and things like that. And often they will respond to airway surgery or they will respond to medical management. But that's something that we're finding more and more about. And the other thing is like bronchial collapse and lung lobe torsion like happens in pugs and things. So there's lots of issues that are more affects more than just their upper airway, I think. Um, so I think that's something that would be good for first opinion um first opinion vets to bear in mind. Like if French you know, brachycephalic that's regurgitating it it could benefit from airway surgery first before you, you know, do any GI surgery. Absolutely, absolutely, and they they do. I mean, I suppose uh, uh, I would have to look at the numbers, but I imagine our aspiration pneumonia dogs that we see are probably overrepresented in in the in the in the brachycephalic yeah. breeds uh, that, yeah. that that we that we see. Yeah. Um, and regurgitation after GA is really common as well. So um, we often will give them a meprazole. Some people give them meropitant as well. That's definitely something that we discuss with the owner. And if they are regurgitating, like to watch out for aspiration pneumonia. So like you know, a soft cough, lethargic, off their off their food, and often um, it will take them a few days before they stop regurgitating once they've gone home. So that's something that we're realising more and more, I guess, with just the numbers that we're seeing as well. And it's really much more prevalent in French bulldogs. The regurgitation. Yeah. And do, is there? It's be interesting actually to probably get a combined group of uh, of uh, maybe surgeons, medics, maybe UCC people, and ethicists to to talk about the certain areas and and try and work out the best ways to to do uh, to do certain things or manage certain things that we're that we're seeing. Yeah. It's really good. Thank you uh, so much. Okay. It'd be really uh, interesting. I'm, I, I'd hope that listeners would as well about um, the follow up. You know, from what's happening yeah. in in the in the European Congress of Veterinary yeah. Surgeons, and and see sort of what the idea is and where, where we're going in the in the future. But it, uh, but it's good when a lot of people would get together with the with a focus because yeah. um i think that will definitely drive things you know drive um better patient care really at, at the end it's quite like an intimidating panel it's basically like you know when you read anything about brackies it's literally all of those people are like me you're 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 gonna be absolutely fine <laughs> well i'll do my best so uh, well, you at least can enjoy Greece as well. <laughs> yeah. So we'll we'll wrap it up there. Thank you so much for your time, Linda, and uh, and thank you for listening. So don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit-based device. That way you won't even have to worry about missing a podcast. If you can leave us a review, a five-star review, um, that would be great. Don't forget to tell your friends, vet friends or others. And we'll place any show notes and maybe a couple of links on the RBC pages. So just type in RBC Clinical Podcast into your search engine of choice and it should be top of the tree. So if you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast, please get in touch. You can either email dbarfield at rbc.ac.uk or tweet at Don Barfield. Until next time, bye-bye.